Chapter 1 The Occupation of All Things The center and the circumference of the Christian life is none other than the person of Christ. All other things, including those related to Him, are eclipsed by the sight of His peerless worth. God put an image in our galaxy to demonstrate what Christ is to us. We call it the sun. Without it, no life can exist on planet Earth. We are dependent upon the sun for everything, and just as the sun is the center of our solar system, Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of God's universe and even our lives. To you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 As Dietrich Bonhoeffer pointed out in his seminal book, Christ the Center, Jesus is the center of human existence, of history, and the center between God and nature. History is his story. Of this connection, British author H. G. Wells remarked, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Yet Christ isn't just found in the center. He's also found in the corners and on the edges, just as the light of the sun hits all of planet Earth. Indeed, Jesus is not just the Lord of the middle and the margins. He is the God of the whole show. The bright and morning star gives light to all that exists. Lead, kindly light, amid the encircling gloom. John Henry Newman 1801-1890. After two thousand years, Jesus' light shines ever brighter, and we can track his brilliant gleam into the shadowy realms of whatever gloom there is. Knowing Christ profoundly and in reality is the chief pursuit of the Christian life. The Lord is preeminently concerned about our knowing him. We are called into the fellowship of God's Son. God is not so much about fixing things that have gone wrong in our lives as He is about finding us in our brokenness and giving us Christ. When Christ is not central and supreme in our lives, everything about life shifts out of orbit and moves out of kilter. So for Christians, our first task is to know Jesus, and out of that knowing we will come to love Him, adore Him, proclaim Him, and manifest Him. The Occupation of the Heavens The entire heavenly realm, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the angelic hosts, are occupied with Christ. The second member of the Trinity is no second thought of God, but his very forethought and first thought. There are only a few places in the Gospels where we find God the Father speaking audibly, and in each case he points to his Son. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Jesus once said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whenever God the Father speaks, he speaks of his Son, for Christ is foremost on his heart. The bread of life can be tasted in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.
In fact, when God expresses Himself, it is Christ. We can rightly say that God spoke Himself into human life in the person of the Lord Jesus. For this reason, John called Christ the Logos, the living Word of God. God's Word is a person. The one true God has revealed Himself completely and finally in Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. In like manner, the Holy Spirit, the great revelator, also reveals Christ. And Christ is the only thing that the Spirit reveals. He has no other revelation. The Spirit introduces Jesus, usually in some new way. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Someone may object by saying, But Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is true. But Jesus makes himself the reference point for these things. Therefore the question becomes, How does the Spirit convict the world? He does it by showing Christ to the world. The Holy Spirit has come to reveal, to glorify, to magnify, to unveil, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes what is true of Christ and makes it real and alive in the lives of human beings. That's the occupation and preoccupation of the Spirit. It's what He does for a living. But there's something more. The Father was so consumed with Christ that he was pleased to place all the divine fullness into him. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Finally, all of the angelic hosts live to worship and serve the Lord Jesus. They too are occupied with Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 says, When God again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. In a word, Jesus is heaven's passion and occupation. The Occupation of Creation Paul tells us that the entire universe was created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. In addition, all things in heaven and earth are held together in Christ and will one day be summed up in him. Consequently, creation is also occupied with Christ. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. 
If you explore the seven days of creation in light of the New Testament, you will discover that everything in the visible creation is an image of Jesus. For example, Christ is light. Christ is water. Christ is the life that emerged on the third day after the waters below the firmament were separated from the waters above. Christ is the true vine. Christ is wheat and the bread of life. Christ is the sun, the moon, and the morning star. Christ is the true lamb. Christ is the model man. Christ is the real Sabbath. The Lord Jesus is written in the bloodstream of the universe. The Creator left an impression of Christ in everything. That which came forth from the lungs of God when the worlds were spoken into existence was Jesus. The entire cosmos bears His magnificent imprint. In a matchless metaphor, Tertullian wrote that Christ, Logos, pervades the world in the same way as honey in the comb. This shouldn't surprise us, since the whole created order was created by, in, through, and for Christ. And the whole creation groans for Jesus to deliver it from the bondage of corruption and fill it with his infinite sweetness. The Tree of Life The tree of life my soul hath seen, laden with fruit and always green. The trees of nature fruitless be compared with Christ the apple tree. His beauty doth all things excel. By faith I know, but ne'er can tell, the glory which I now can see in Jesus Christ the apple tree. For happiness I long have sought, and pleasure dearly I have bought. I missed for all, but now I see tis found in Jesus Christ the apple tree. I'm weary with my former toil. Here I will sit and rest a while. Under the shadow I will be of Jesus Christ the apple tree. I'll sit and eat this truth divine. It cheers my heart like spiritual wine. And now this fruit is sweet to me that grows on Christ the apple tree. This fruit does make my soul to thrive. It keeps my dying faith alive, which makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. 18th Century Christmas Carol The Occupation of the Old Testament And what of the Holy Scriptures? Jesus himself answered this question, declaring that the Hebrew Scriptures are also occupied with him. You search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Jesus Christ makes Scripture intelligible. He is the key that unlocks the entire biblical canon. When one reads the New Testament carefully, this becomes evident. For instance, the entire story of Israel is the story of the Messiah, Jesus. Christ is the new Israel, the new Jacob and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord by the prophet, saying, 
Out of Egypt I called my son. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Jacob had twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus also chose twelve disciples to follow him. Israel was tempted in the wilderness for forty years. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for forty days. In fact, the same temptations that Israel experienced in the wilderness were repeated when Christ was in the wilderness. To combat them, Jesus quoted the words of Moses to Satan. Interestingly, they were the exact same words that Moses gave to Israel when she was tempted. The book of Genesis further demonstrates the Scripture's preoccupation with Christ. Chapters 1 and 2 were never intended to be the battleground for the creation versus evolution debate. They are rather an unveiling of Christ and his church. Jesus is the new Adam, the church is the new Eve, and the Gospel of John is the new Genesis. Compare Genesis chapters 1 and 2 with John chapters 1 and 2. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord, from heaven. For this reason man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the Church. Have you ever noticed how the New Testament writers quoted the Hebrew Scriptures? Go back to the Old Testament and read the quoted texts. You'll learn that the New Testament writers were using a method of interpretation that would drive most textual critics insane. It isn't at all modern. It's as if they were reading the texts out of context. But they weren't. They were reading it through the lens of Christ. For example, consider Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Consider the way Jesus himself interpreted the scriptures in light of himself. Then combine that with the way the gospel authors, Paul of Tarsus, and the writers of Hebrews, saw Christ in the Hebrew scriptures. By doing so, you'll be furnished with a new lens through which to read your Old Testament. Christ will leap off almost every page. When viewed through the template of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament becomes a living piece of art. It gets transformed into God's picture book showing us the wonders of Jesus. As John Calvin once said, we ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. Whoever shall turn aside from this object, though he may weary himself throughout his entire life in learning, will never attain the knowledge of the truth. For what wisdom can we have without the wisdom of God? Charles Spurgeon underscored this point, saying, For every text in scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures. That is Christ. And, my dear brother, your business is, when you get to a text, to say, Now what is the road to Christ? I have never yet found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. 
Note that we aren't expecting religious Jews to see Jesus in the Old Testament, although we wish they would. But it doesn't violate the Jewish faith if they do not. However, it does violate the Christian faith if we do not see Jesus in the Old Testament. Either the Hebrew Bible is a part of the Christian Bible, or it isn't. In short, Christians can only know the full meaning of the Old Testament by looking at the end of the story, which has dawned in Christ. The beginning cannot be understood apart from the end. Genesis cannot be fully understood without revelation. We, therefore, should understand the Old Testament scriptures in light of Jesus Christ. He is the Rosetta Stone of the Bible. The Occupation of the New Testament The New Testament is also occupied with Christ. It goes without saying that Jesus is the subject of the four Gospels. Their pages are dominated by his amazing life, the horrors of his crucifixion, and the wonders of his resurrection. In the book of Acts, Jesus, who is now ascended, extends his presence through his body, the church. Luke opened Acts by saying that his gospel write-up, the Gospel of Luke, was a record of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The book of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus did and taught through his body. The Apostle's message throughout Acts is not the plan of salvation, it's not a theology or a set of doctrines either. It is a person, Christ. And that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. In Acts chapter 2 verse 42 we read about something called the Apostles' Doctrine. Following the day of Pentecost, the church in Jerusalem continued steadfastly in this teaching. But what exactly was it? Before we answer that question, let's reframe it. Here's the scene. The twelve have just baptized three thousand new converts. Tomorrow they will begin teaching these new converts. What will they teach them? Look across the landscape of contemporary Christianity and ask yourself what many of today's preachers would teach them. Here are some certain answers. They would teach them about how to live a good, clean life church multiplication strategies, the mark of the beast and end times prophecy, the 613 laws of Moses exhorting them to obey each one of them, the 614th commandment, thou shalt not forget, the visions and dreams in Daniel and Ezekiel, signs, wonders, and miracles, how to build a movement, divine healing, how to live by faith, how to save the lost, Creation versus evolution, leadership principles, how to memorize the scriptures, social justice, prosperity, the believer's right to name it and claim it, spiritual warfare, how to observe Israel's feasts, wealth and health, systematic theology. Now compare this list with what the apostles actually taught the early believers. John, one of the twelve, told us plainly, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us.
That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The apostles' teaching was Jesus Christ. And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The twelve lived with the Son of God for almost four years. They watched him sleep, eat, heal the sick, cast out demons, comfort the afflicted, and afflict the comfortable. But more importantly, in living color they beheld the taproot and headwaters of Jesus' incredible life. They watched him fellowship with his Father. In short, the New Testament writers were completely consumed with Christ. He was their message, their teaching, their proclamation, their very life, and everything else flowed out of intimate fellowship with him. God's presence is not accidental in relation to his teaching, but is essential to it. God's presence in human form, in the humble form of a servant, is itself the teaching. Soren Kierkegaard The Message and Ministry of Paul of Tarsus Both of us have developed the habit of counting the number of times we hear preachers mention the Lord Jesus in their talks. Sadly, in many cases, contemporary preachers and teachers who spend an hour speaking on a subject mention the Lord just once or twice. Sometimes the number of mentions is zero. Compare that with how many times Paul referred to Christ in the opening chapters of some of his letters. Colossians chapter 1, 29 verses, 30 references to Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, 23 verses, 26 references. Philippians chapter 1, 30 verses, 20 references. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, 11 references. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, 13 references. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, 5 references. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, 4 references. If you were to count the total number of times Paul spoke of Christ in each epistle, it would blow your mind. The same is true for the other New Testament authors. Note that Paul wrote most of the New Testament epistles and planted most of the Gentile churches in the first century. His incessant mention of the Lord Jesus speaks volumes. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul was consumed with his crucified, risen, and reigning Lord. If the heart is occupied with Christ, Jesus will pour forth from the lips and the pen. He will ooze out of every pore. In a nutshell, New Testament ministry is the ministry of Jesus Christ. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ, that I might preach him, Christ, among the Gentiles. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Since the Scriptures are inspired by the Father and the Holy Spirit, it stands to reason that each word of Holy Writ would breathe a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God the Father is consumed with His Son, and so is the Spirit. In sum, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the angels, all of creation, the Scriptures, and the early apostles' ministries all point their fingers to Jesus. The spotlight of heaven and earth never leaves Christ. He is the melody, the harmony, the rhythm, the tempo, and the music behind all things. The heavens and the earth sing His song and play His tune. Practical Implications We are keenly sensitive to how hard it may be for some listening to this chapter to hear such an elevation of Jesus Christ. We hope that you will stay with us a little longer. We have written this book to be more of a dance than a talk about dancing. We are also aware that some listening to this chapter may blithely nod in agreement but without realizing the staggering implications of what's just been presented. We know because we've both said what we're saying here before and some people shoot past it as they would skip over a commercial. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Samuel J. Stone So what does this mean practically? It means that if a person is truly inspired by the Spirit of God when he or she is speaking, that individual's message will be Christ. Jesus will bleed through every word. Why? Because the Spirit is totally occupied with Christ. It also means that when someone is teaching from the Scriptures and being true to the Word of God, that teacher will unveil Christ through the text. Jesus will be drawn out and lifted up from the pages of the Bible. Why? Because the Scriptures are completely occupied with Christ. It means that Christ will be on the lips of every person and church who is walking in the Spirit, and He will leap out from their lifestyles. It means that church members will know their Lord better than they know their church programs. It means that Jesus will get airplay in their conversations. It means His melody will resound through their actions and reverberate in their attitudes. Consequently, those who do not present Christ when they minister not only miss a note, but they play the wrong tune. The tragedy of our time is that countless preachers, teachers, and even healers are giving dozens of sermons, lectures, and messages, relegating Jesus to little more than a footnote or a flourish to some other subject. At best, he gets honorable mention. What is lacking is a groundbreaking revelation of Christ that boggles the mind and enraptures the heart. More on this later. Depending on what Christian tradition you hail from, the word revelation may ring spooky or mystical to your ears, but it's really not. The New Testament authors repeatedly used it to describe an unveiling, a spiritual seeing, an inward knowing of Christ. Everything in the Christian life stems from such a revelation of Him. Consider Jesus' own words. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Paul's ministry was built on an inward revelation of Christ. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Now to Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. In like manner, Paul's throne-ascending prayer in Ephesians was for the Spirit to reveal Christ to his people. I do not cease to make mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Let us press the point. What is it that will change the course of Christianity, putting it back on course? What will emancipate God's people from all the things that Jesus nailed to his cross? What will create a spiritual revolution in the world today? What one thing will satisfy the heart of God and cause us to love him with an undying passion, making our hearts burn within us when we read the scriptures? It is not the doctrine of the person of Jesus. It's an inward revelation of Christ to our hearts by the Holy Spirit a progressive unveiling of the person who stands behind the sacred page and is the occupation of all things. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's your occupation? So what is your chief occupation in life and in ministry? Here's a hint. Whatever you are occupied with comes out of your mouth. It's what you talk about most of the time. For many Christians, their occupation has nothing to do with spiritual things at all. For others who are more inclined to divine matters, their occupation is evangelism. For some, it's church multiplication that matters most. For others, it's memorizing the Bible and learning theology. Many Christians are most occupied with social action while others are most occupied with leadership and its various principles. Still others are mainly occupied with missions or praise or worship, the casting out of demons or healing, miracles, holiness or the end times, spiritual authority and submission, justice or politics, and so forth. The list is endless. But all of these things are its, just things. In fact, the Christian family has swung so far from its Lord that most of our preaching and teaching today is an it rather than a him. The result? We focus on things, even good and religious things, and the Lord Jesus Christ is pushed off into a corner. He usually gets inserted somewhere in the message as a side dish, but he's rarely the main course. Yet the reality is, that Christ trumps everything. All Scripture testifies of Him. The Father exalts Him. The Spirit magnifies Him. The angels worship Him. The early church knew Him as her passion, her message, and the unction of her life. Christ was her specialty. He was her bridegroom and head. She specialized in nothing else. All told, there's nothing worth pursuing outside of Christ. 
To our minds, there is one reason why a Christian would not be absolutely occupied and consumed with Christ. That person's eyes have not been opened to see his greatness. The sad truth is that the Jesus who is preached so often today is so shallow, so small, and so uncaptivating that countless believers are enthralled with countless other things. The characteristic of Christianity lies in the fact that its source, depth, and riches are involved with the knowledge of God's Son. It matters not how much we know of methods or doctrines or power. What really matters is the knowledge of the Son of God. Watchman Nee A Divine Captivity The need today is for the scales to fall from our eyes so that we may see the infinite greatness of our Lord. That requires the existence of those who can present Him with astounding power and reality. This, of course, necessitates that those who have been smitten by Christ themselves impart that same sterling vision of Him to others. As T. Austin Sparks once put it, Divine fullness is only going to be reached by a progressive and ever-increasing revelation of Christ and His significance. Such a revelation, unless we misunderstand the record of God's ways from old, comes, firstly, by an apprehended instrument which is taken into the deeps with God. Then it is given forth as His truth to His people, and then it becomes the inwrought experience and knowledge of such as really mean business with God, not as their blessing, but as to His purpose and inheritance in them. Once our eyes are opened to see the incredible richness and captivating beauty of Jesus, either our other pursuits will take a back seat or we will discover them anew and afresh in the light of His glory and grace. Like Paul, we will be apprehended, ambushed, and arrested by Christ. This is precisely what happened to one of the greatest minds that the Christian world has ever produced. As we mentioned in the introduction, near the end of his life, the great theologian Thomas Aquinas had a revelation of Jesus Christ. In the afterglow of that revelation, he penned, I can write no more. Compared with what I have seen, all that I have written seems to me as straw. A spellbinding apprehension of Jesus by our hearts wipes everything else off the table. Jesus bests all things. He dwarfs every competitor. Concisely, a person who is fully occupied with Christ, who knows Him well and who is in touch with Him through daily fellowship, can boldly say, Christ is all I need. You can strip everything else away from me and I would still be left with Christ. Take away my gifts and my ministry. Take away signs and wonders. Take away the sense of His presence. Take away my ability to read and take away every spiritual and religious pursuit I have, and I will still have Christ. And in having Him, I have everything. A Person-Driven Life Our plea is that you will bring the Lord Jesus Christ back into view, making Him the lighthouse of your life and giving Him His rightful place of centrality, supremacy, and sovereignty. We implore you, make Christ the center, make Him the circumference, and fill in the difference with Him as well. As you continue to listen to this book, we pray that the Spirit of God will give you an ever-widening, skyrocketing, 
heaven-ascending revelation of the Lord Jesus, and that upon receiving such revelation you will fall in love with him so that he becomes your complete occupation. We believe that God has a secret stairway into every heart, and in this book we have tried to forge as many keys as we can envision to inspire you to take those steps homeward. Christ is all. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11. These three words are the essence and substance of Christianity. If our hearts can really go along with them, it is well with our souls. If not, we may be sure we have yet much to learn. J.C. Ryle, Anglican Bishop, 